What am I for? What I am is a creature made in the image of God. But what am I for? What's my purpose in life? What do you and I need if we're going to flourish? There's a whole load of different answers out there. I noticed that um, this weekend we're sharing this venue with, amongst other groups, the Bear Grills Team Building and Leadership Forum. <laughs> I wonder what Bear Grills would say the purpose of humanity is. Uh, I imagine he'd have some interesting answers, but for myself, I can't put too much trust in a man who spends so much time drinking his own urine. So, um, <laughs> as great as his insights may be, and as, uh, as wonderful as the insights are in different places around the world, and different sources within human thinking. We're going to go back to the Bible, to the Maker's instructions. And what I really want to do is focus on the fall, um, on the corruption of humanity, on the entry of sin to the world, and see how we as a race have been affected by Adam's rejection of God um, by looking at the three relationships that we were made to flourish in and the way that they have been affected, marred, corrupted by sin each time. Um, so, the, if you like, we'll run through one, two, and three, and then we'll go back through them again, looking at uh, what has happened to us under each heading. As we do so, we'll see that, uh, I think, two things in the Bible from this session. Firstly, the Bible gives not just the best grounding for uh, working out how to live a good human life, but it also gives the best explanation for why on earth is our world in the mess that it is right now. Uh, Farrell Williams, I'm so down with it, look at my cultural <laughs> references, uh, was sued by Marvin Gaye's family for, um, for copyright breach with his song Happy. Actually, the, the idea behind his song goes back a little bit further than Marvin Gaye. The, Aristotle, um, the Greek philosopher, famously declared the whole aim of human existence is to be happy. John Locke, the Enlightenment philosopher, uh, he taught deeply on this, and then his ideas were taken up in the, in the United States Declaration of Independence, which stated that for a meaningful existence, the citizens of that great colony needed the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But what does that mean? How would you complete this sentence? In order to be happy and fulfilled in my life, I need... In order to be happy and fulfilled in my life, I need dot, dot, dot. How do you complete that sentence? Well, how does the Bible complete it? I think in Genesis 1 to 2, we see three relationships are established. And those three relationships are then damaged in the fall in Genesis 3. And as we look at uh, how they're established and how they're damaged, we see what we need at a most fundamental level if we're going to live out our purpose as humanity and we're to live happy and flourished lives. And we're made for God, we're made for others, and we're made for the world. And in each, in each relationship, how we flourish in the relationship looks a bit different. So we're made reliant and reverent. We're made to relate to God by being reliant and reverent. Now, it's not taught explicitly. It's not as if um, God <coughs> forms the man, Adam, and then says, and thou shalt have a quiet time, Adam. Um, but we see it from the simple fact that when he makes Adam, he doesn't just <coughs> disappear back. He starts speaking to him. God relates to Adam. When he makes man and woman, God speaks. God relates to us. Uh, two R's which help us understand what the Bible means when it talks about us relating to God, especially in Genesis, would be reliant and reverent. We're made reliant and reverent. Firstly, we're made reliant. We're made to rely on God, to be dependent upon him. 
So uh, God speaks and tells Adam and Eve how to live in the world. He provides a tree of life in Genesis 2 verse 9 and then other trees in the garden that have good tasty fruit. So he provides all that they need for their physical bodies to be nourished and for their uh, and for them to live forever. He provides everything they need. So he made us as creatures, not gods, not immortal. But then he gives us everything we need and he designed us to rely on him. Uh, Jesus faced down the devil's first temptation in the wilderness by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. We saw it a few weeks ago in Luke 4. And he quotes, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We're designed to rely on God, on his word, and then to be filled with thanks and praise as we enjoy God's good provision. We're also made reverent beings. That is, uh, you and I are designed to revere, to worship. We're designed to treat something as ultimate, something as, as greater, uh, to, to orientate ourselves to a reality that is bigger than just you and me. Or put crudely, we're designed to treat God as God. And that's a wonderful thing. Um, uh, a load of friends were at the U2 concert this week and they posted um, videos online as everybody does these days and two things were remarkable one was every video everybody had one hand in the air with a mobile phone like this no one was actually watching the concert they're just watching this ridiculous two inch by three inch screen of the concert um, but the other thing is their other hand were in the air and, and they looked just ecstatic because actually we're designed to enjoy things and to delight in them we're designed to praise what is praiseworthy, to find happiness and delight in good things and then to, to give praise and thanks. And we are most happy and most delighted when we turn to the most delightful, rich, enjoyable being of all. Psalm 63, <coughs> David, having spent time in the desert in Judah, speaks about God in this way. You, God, are my God, and earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and barren land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. I'll be satisfied as with richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. The Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's a wonderful uh, wonderful declaration. The Puritans have this reputation as sort of hardline doctrine wallers who have no joy in their hearts. And yet extraordinarily in that huge theological statement the very first point Question and answer one at the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to know God and enjoy him forever. We were made reliant and we're made reverent. We're also made to, uh, to interact with other human beings. We're made relational. Now, we often, again, misread Genesis 2 because we fail to see what's most obvious. We just, we're, we're so busy reading into it that we don't, read it. Uh, before Eve is Adam's wife, Genesis 2 verses 20 and verse 22, she is helper and woman. Um, so, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Genesis 2 verse 20. And then verse 22, the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man 
and brought her to the man. She's a woman and she's a helper before she is a wife. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, three little implications will help help pull out what's going on. Firstly, Adam cannot fulfill his calling to serve God on his own. He can't do it on his own. Secondly, Adam needs someone who is not exactly like him. Another man won't do. Adam needs someone different from himself. And three, even when Adam has a perfect relationship with God, walking with him in the Garden of Eden, he is lonely without human company. You and I need the companionship of other humans. And I think in particular, we see here, we need the companionship of people who are not exactly like us. The danger in London is that uh, the, everything's so fluid that we're, we're, we can end up just choosing social groupings of people who are just exactly the same as you and me. And obviously, marriage is perhaps the most intense expression of a relationship between difference, male and female, but it is not the only one. And it should not be the only one in our lives, whether we're married or single, you and I need, if we're to serve God properly, and if we're to have rich and fulfilled existences, relationships that we deepen and develop with people who are not exactly like us. You are designed to need other people if you're going to serve God, and if you're not going to be lonely, and you were designed to need people who are a bit different from you. So don't just retreat into people like me. Press into, into getting to know people who are different. So if somebody comes and sits with you at lunch, they think you're weird and different. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh gosh, who do I sit with? Who do I talk to at lunch? Yeah, don't worry, don't worry. We're on a weekend away. You sit with whoever you happen to walk into at the same time. But I do mean as a, as a principle in life. It's healthy and fulfilling and rich to get to know and to deepen relationships with people who are a bit different from you. Your life will be very narrow if the only perspectives you have and the only people you really get to know are quite like you. So we're made uh, for God to rely on him and to revere him. We're made to have relationship with others, and in particular uh, to need others who are a bit different from us. And thirdly, we're made to relate to the world. We're made royal we're made to rule over the world. So Genesis 1.26, we looked at earlier. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the whole world. 28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish, the birds and the living creatures. Genesis 2 verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. His job is not to exploit, to ruin and pollute, but to steward, to cultivate, to care for. Now there is a ton more of stuff that could be said here, but notice work doesn't appear after the fall. The existence of work is not a result of sin entering the world. Adam worked before the fall. Now, granted, his work was a little bit different. The northern line came after the fall. He didn't have to commute. <laughs> but work came before the fall. Now, the Bible has a ton of guidance as well to help us work out how do I flourish in each of these areas. But the basic point is very simple. You and I were made to know God, to form relationships with other people, and to work in God's world. Of course, there is one other... Well, relationship is actually the wrong word. Um, one other thing to highlight 
And that's, uh, how do I think about myself? Now, the Bible, I don't think, would encourage us to talk in terms of relationship with self. The Bible doesn't really fit in with our culture's obsession with self. The whole idea of, of self as a developed concept really came in with Freud in, in one sense. So you'll notice, actually, there is no call to develop self-awareness in Genesis. Uh, God doesn't uh, talk to Adam and Eve in terms of uh, developing their introspective understanding. It's not as if God says to Adam, now, I'm not creating woman just yet. I'm going to give you some space, Adam. You've got to learn to love yourself before you can be ready to love Eve. There's, there's none of that. Uh, all the emphasis right from the start is look outwards, serve outwards, love outwards. And you and I would be a whole lot healthier, not if we had a lower image of ourselves, not if we thought less of ourselves, but if we thought of ourselves a whole lot less. would be a lot happier and healthier if we thought of ourselves a whole lot less. So as I say, there is no, there is no um, explicit teaching about self in a psychologically developed sense in Genesis, but there are some important things that we learn about our nature that are implied. And in particular, um, to go for the biggest, really, is that we are made responsible beings. We're made responsible beings. God gives us commands and God expects us to obey them. In other words, uh, at heart, to be responsible is to be rational and to be moral. Rational and moral. Now, part of being responsible is that uh, God has made us rational beings. He speaks to us with language and he speaks in logical ways because he's made us able to understand. He's given us rational minds. He could hardly hold us responsible for failing to obey commands we simply cannot understand. Uh, so 2 verse 17, he gives, he speaks in language and he uses logic with the man. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. In other words, he speaks to him in a way that Adam can understand and he tells him about, about a consequence of his actions if he does something. He made him a rational being. But he also made us moral beings. In other words, he, he made us to use our reason, our rational faculties, to do what is right rather than what is wrong. Moral and rational, and therefore we're responsible. So when you step back, you see we're given <coughs> enormous freedom in which to flourish. God has endowed us with wonderful capacities and only set the broadest of boundaries and said, enjoy the world. Enjoy the world. There's only one command in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, one sort of negative command. Don't eat from that tree. That's it, basically. Other than that, knock yourselves out. Enjoy it. That's what God says. Now, of course, all of that changes at the fall. And in one sense, you can summarize what happens at the fall as a, a shift a fundamental shift of the centre of gravity. Sin is all about turning away from the outward focus that God called us to have and turning in on ourselves. Sin is uh, self-preoccupation, self-elevation, self-obsession. The human soul is like a toenail. It works very well, that's important, but if it starts to grow inwards, it's not very pleasant. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> My toenails are particularly unpleasant. But ingrowing toenails, you know, the, as soon as we turn in on ourselves, everything goes horribly wrong. Now we're going to focus mainly on Genesis 3 as we work out the consequences of the fall uh, for the three relationships. And then we'll look to Romans 1 to think about um, the impact it has on ourselves. Uh, so let's go back through those four categories. Firstly, uh, humanity and God. Humanity is now cut off from God. 
We're hiding from him in Genesis 3. And even if we do go looking, we find uh, Genesis 3.24, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, that's angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth. Even when we're not running away from God, making up God in our own image, we find when we do want to get back to God, there's a flipping great flaming sword in the way. We can't get to God. But we are still worshippers, interestingly. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve do not want to get rid of the concept of God. They want to be God. They don't want anarchy. They want self-rule. Look at uh, 3, 4. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining that wisdom, she took some and ate it. Um, another uh, high cultural allusion, the, the Lion King. When uh, Scar, at the beginning of The Lion King, well, I've got to work out what all of you lot will have seen. Um, <laughs> I was going to quote high literature, but anyway, um, <laughs> joking. Uh, the, uh, at the beginning of Lion King, when Scar talks with the hyenas about his plan to get rid of the king, uh, he says he, he, he's going to be killed. And they say, yay, no king, no king. He says, idiots, there will be a king. They look confused. He I will be king. And that is what goes on in Genesis. You and I, we don't want no God. We don't want to get rid of the idea of God. We want to be God. That's what happens. After the fall, we don't stop worshipping. It's just we stop worshipping God and start worshipping me and other things. And you and I will never understand um, the world and we'll never understand ourselves until we get this principle clear. We have to worship. We just have to. Long before uh, the trendy new atheists, um, the pin-up of atheism was Bertrand Russell in the last century. <coughs> he, he absolutely hated Christianity. Uh, he wrote the book, uh, Why I'm Not a Christian, to try and convince others to follow his lead. But it's interesting that he conceded we humans are born with what he called a cruel thirst for worship. He hated the fact that he could not deny that something in us wants to worship a god. And I think you see that most clearly in the most atheist regimes, uh, communist China, North Korea, Russia. They try to get rid of God, but actually they end up creating their own god, the state. The way that they require people to... Um, to think about the state is religious. I mean, look at the titles um, of the founder of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, that the supposedly rigorously atheist regime that has cleansed itself of every shred of religion, they say. Listen to how the state media is required to speak of Kim Jong-un. Dear leader, who is the perfect incarnation of the appearance a leader should have... Uh, Marketing department must have been pleased with how well that trips off the tongue. Maybe it loses something in translation. But uh, the bright son of the 21st century, he died in 1973. The great son of life, our saviour, the glorious general descended from heaven. Every last shred of religion has been excised from our country. Really? That is why to become a Christian is treason in North Korea. Because to worship Jesus is a direct challenge to the worship that is demanded by the communist leadership. And that's also why the gospel is so offensive in our culture too. 
Uh, when we evangelize, when we tell people about Jesus, it's not as if evangelism is, hey, look, you've lived without this category of God in your life, but let me tell you, actually, there is such a person as God. His name is Jesus, and he's truly wonderful. Actually, the truth is, at one level, evangelism is, look, you are sitting on a throne that you have no right to. You are wearing a crown that you have grabbed off the head of God. You are not the rightful ruler of your life. You're wearing somebody else's crown, sitting on somebody else's throne, and one day you'll face judgment for it. But thankfully, he has taken the punishment for you. Now, you may want to phrase it slightly more winsomely, and I don't think the the Bible would encourage us to, to explain the gospel in exactly those terms. But the gospel is always a revolution, an invasion, because the gospel is a declaration, I am not God. I am not king. Jesus is. No wonder people find it offensive. They're bound to. That's why we find it offensive. But at the same time as challenging our self-rule, the gospel answers our deepest longing. Because none of the other pretenders can truly satisfy. Uh, Neither the state, nor my career, nor myself, nor any of my relationships can fulfill my heart's longing to worship. Uh, Augustine, writing in the 300s AD, explained why those God substitutes never satisfy. O our God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I do sometimes wonder whether it's only those amongst us who who became Christians a bit later in life, from really clearly non-Christian backgrounds, it's only really those people who properly get what Augustine's saying and see how deep and rich it is. So we relate to God, we just do so wrongly. Secondly, we still relate to other people, but again, we relate to other people wrongly. Because I act like I am God, I find myself in conflict with everybody else because they're acting like they're God. I expect the universe to revolve around me, and and that means I keep colliding with you because you expect the universe to revolve around you. We use others. So God holds Adam responsible for the the act of disobedience. And what does Adam do? He uses Eve to try and get himself off the hook, blames her. Marriage, from that moment onwards, is is an arena for conflict between masculine brute force and feminine wiles, according to Genesis 3. Both try to get my way and try to get the other to bend to my will. So we stop seeking to serve and to love other people. And instead, other people become tools that are useful to me or obstacles that need to be trampled over or knocked down to get to what I want. We're still capable of good. It's not like we're, you know, that's the only way. But there is a fundamental shift from seeking to love others to seeking to use others to love me. Likewise, the relationship with the world has changed for the worse. It no longer responds the way it should to those who've been called to rule in the image of God. So the 18th century uh, preacher Whitfield said, Dost thou wonder why it is that dogs do growl at thee and the birds squawk? It is because they know that thou hast a quarrel with their maker. Um, yeah, he liked his, his illustrations in Whitfield. And he's got a point. But from weeds in the garden and IT meltdowns at work to multiple sclerosis and famines, the world we live in can be difficult and frustrating and painful. <clears throat> The relationship with the world has fundamentally changed. It doesn't do what it should. And we can't control it the way we should. 
Uh, what about the relationship with self? Uh, what, what's happened to us? Well, there's an easily missed verse, a, a chapter later in Genesis, a chapter two later in Genesis 5. Uh, start at verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's uh, family line. This is the account of Adam. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created, or man. He created them, he made them in the likeness of God, verse 1. Then verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. Adam's son is, he bears the image of God, but there is a little change, a a subtle marker here. Adam's son will be in Adam's image now. And all humanity from this point on is in Adam's fallen image. We still bear the image of God, Genesis 9-6, but it's not the same as it was. Adam's son will bear Adam's image and will bear the, the corruption, the twisting, the fracture that came about from Adam's sin. Now Genesis 3 doesn't explain how our nature has changed, uh, how... Um, the corruption works itself out in our souls. But the rest of Genesis is one long visual illustration of why, quite what a mess we've made. As you see in every aspect of life, things just going horribly wrong. But it's then summarised, I think, clearly in Romans uh, 1, 18-32. So flick up Romans, because that really does give us a, a clear description of what Genesis illustrates. There is lots here, we're not going to go through it in detail. But look in particular at how our capacities, our faculties are affected, impacted. So verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. We no longer seek the truth, we suppress it. And truth here is truth about God. Humans can still work out that two and two is four. Uh, we need a calculator these days, but um, you know, we can still work out two and two is four. But the closer that a truth gets to the truth about God, the harder we find it to acknowledge it, to see it. So, uh, you know, mathematical truths, ge- geometric principles, fine. But the closer <coughs> a truth gets to acknowledging the truth about God, the more darkened <coughs> and twisted our thinking becomes. And we cannot and will not acknowledge the truth about God. Verse 22, thinking has become futile and hearts are darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Actually, start back at 21. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. It's hard to understand exactly what's going on there, but there is some, it's clear that something has happened to our very faculties. We've not lost the ability to to be rational, but it is that we use our rational faculties to rationalise, to self-justify, to excuse, rather than to work out truth. And then verse 28, uh, having turned away from God, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Instead of using our minds, our wills to choose what is right, we do what is wrong. Worst of all, verse 32, it's not just that we're incapable of resisting things that we know we shouldn't do. We actually look at what is wrong and say, that's right, that's healthy, that's good. Darkened thinking leads to disordered living and disordered loving. 
the marring of our image leads, uh, we'll pick it up at 29, they became filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice, gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. If you like, we're like a computer. Uh, obviously a beautifully designed Mac rather than some dodgy PC, but uh, mm-hmm. we, are, we, are, we are a computer. But we've refused to upload the, the updates that the maker keeps sending us to ensure that the computer keeps working. And now it has got corrupted. We've loaded things that we shouldn't have loaded in, full of viruses and bugs. And now the very hard drive itself is corrupted. And although we have this beautifully made computer, it is just full of corruption. And it's incapable now of producing the right results because we've ruined the operating system. And theologians use the phrase total depravity to describe humanity post-fall. It's not that we're as bad as we could be, thank God. We're still capable of doing beautiful and very noble things. And I guess all of us will have, have been on the receiving end of incredible kindness. from, uh, And at the sharpest end, incredible kindness from people who are thoroughly atheist. Uh, it's silly to deny that. The Bible doesn't. But the point is that in every area of our life, in every faculty we have, our thinking and our behaving is warped and corrupted by sin. There is no area of our human being that is not tainted in some way by our sin. And if you don't believe me, if you think that humans are inherently fundamentally good when they're born, help out a crash for two weeks. <laughs> and then let's have the conversation. Uh, I suspect it won't take you two weeks. Um, that we still bear the image of God, so we must love and care for and treat with dignity every human being. But that image is defaced and corrupted. It's covered in filth. That means we are cut off from God, the Bible says, and therefore we're spiritually dead, Ephesians 2. We're addicted to warped desires, and so we're enslaved and incapable of, of escaping from this cycle of sin. Uh, John eight thirty four. everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And we're darkened in our thinking, Romans 1. So we're incapable even understanding the truth about God and the salvation that he offers. Now we are still responsible. Look at verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, God is right to hold us responsible. Now we struggled, and how can I be held responsible if... uh, if my moral compass that ought to lead me to follow him is, is wonky and points the wrong way, how can I be responsible for wandering in the wrong direction? Don't be an economist. Uh, you're an economics teacher, aren't you, Al? Yeah. Uh, definition of economist is somebody who sees something that works very well in practice and says, yes, but does it work in theory? Um, don't be an economist. Don't worry about the theology in one sense. You and I know... <coughs> We know that we're responsible for the stuff we do. We also know that at some level, deep down, we seem addicted to, to getting it wrong. So don't worry about the theory when the practice is beyond question. I know I'm responsible. Think of the last really wrongful thing you did or said. I know I was responsible for it. So don't get head up, um, hung up on the theory. We're responsible and we will be judged. 
Okay, last couple of minutes. Let's just think about the, um, the implications. Firstly, it is important to notice that the doctrine of the fall makes sense to the world. At the start of the 20th century, it was mocked and rejected by all the good and the great because humanity had escaped from savage existence and was now on an upward trajectory to the sunny uplands of human flourishing as we leave behind barbarism of previous centuries in other places. And then came the chaotic mud and blood of the Somme and the clinically efficient horror of Auschwitz. And towards the end of this last century, Dorothy Sayers wrote, Barbarism is not behind us. It's within us. And the truth is that the uh, the Iraq invasion, uh, the Blair and Bush Iraq, Iraq invasion, was in part built on the arrogant Western Enlightenment belief that the solution to the world's problems is democracy. If we just get rid of Saddam Hussein and give the people of Iraq democracy, then their inherent goodness and nobility will come to the surface and Iraq will be a beacon of hope and human rights and democracy and flourishing in the region. The folly of humanity is that we are forever searching for external solutions to what is an internal problem. Education, democracy and the rule of law have an enormous impact on human flourishing. A huge impact. And those of us involved in, in work to, to bring education or democracy or, or to sustain the rule of law are doing really valuable work that makes a difference. But none of them can reverse the effects of the fall. They are external things. They have an impact, but none of us can through external means get rid of the internal problem that I have a compulsion to reject God's wisdom, to serve myself and to use others. Pascal wrote, the doctrine of original sin seems an offence to reason, but once accepted, it does make total sense of the entire human condition. Made in the image of God, noble and capable of good, and yet corrupted inside, and therefore capable of immense wickedness and folly. And that does make sense of human history. Well, so what? Actually, the the implications of this are not just philosophical. It's not just that you have a better explanation at the water cooler for what goes, why Paris happened. Look at what we've done and hate your sin. Look at what our sin has achieved. You can see on the news them carrying out the body bags from that nightclub in Paris. Last week, the news was uh, bodies of Russian holidaymakers strewn across the Sinai Desert. Last week I also read that a nine-year-old boy called Tashawn Lee in Chicago was on his way back from school and was taken into an alley and was shot, pumped full of bullets because his dad was in a gang dispute with somebody else. And so a nine-year-old boy was taken into an alley and just pumped full of bullets. Every murder, every terrorist atrocity, every act of child abuse, every trafficked young girl, every famine because of a stupid corrupt regime has its roots in sin our sin not their sin but our sin our turning away from God the sins that you and I play with that we secretly indulge and try to cling on to as long as we can those sins are the cause of what we see in the world hate sin for what it's done to this world hate sin for what it has done to your heart and your mind hate sin for what it is Inherently filthy and corrupt and wicked. 
Look also at what we are and trust God. It's very easy to, to miss this point. Our minds do not work the way they should. So do not trust your own judgment implicitly. God's word is the one perfect source of truth we have in this world. If you know that a computer has got a bug in it, then you, you don't implicitly trust the outcomes it gives you. John seventeen seventeen, your word, God, is truth. Paul writes in Romans 3, 4, let God be proved true and every man a liar if people disagree with God. And that means when my judgment and my desires run into an en- a no-entry sign in God's word, do I trust my desires and my judgment or do I trust God's word? When my culture says this is good and God's word says no, it's not, do I trust the judgment of the great and good in my culture or do I trust the word of God? Look at what we are. Don't trust our judgment implicitly. Trust God's word. But finally, look at where we're heading and praise God for his saviour. I think some of the most shocking words in the Bible, ones we uh, read a few weeks ago in KG, as a uh, start of Jesus' ministry. Um, now imagine uh, John the Baptist, you know, he's got this job, introduced the Messiah, uh, and the big day comes and <coughs> John's got a bit of a frog in his throat and says, look, I'm, I'm losing my voice, can you just step in for me? Jesus is approaching, what do you say? Huge crowds of people waiting for the saviour, what words do you use to introduce Jesus? John's, you know, around the corner trying to sort out his voice, it's down to you, what do you say? John looks to Jesus as he approaches and he turns to the crowd and says, flee the coming wrath. (coughs) Seek a sensitive (coughs) ministry. Hebrews 9.27, man is destined to die once and then face judgment. John looks at Jesus and says, flee the coming wrath to the people. Humanity is standing on a beach and the tsunami of God's righteous judgment is surging towards us. And the wonderful thing is we don't flee by running from it. You'll never outrun it. And John doesn't want us to run the other way as he watches Jesus, the judge, approach. We flee by running to him. When you and I look at what our sins as humans have done to this world and when you and I look at what we have done and said and thought in our own hearts with our sins. When we realise the judgement that ought to come upon us and upon this world, well, praise God, for his response was to send the judge as a saviour. How wonderful that our God is a God of mercy. Praise him for it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that your word tells us how to flourish in this world, relating to and relying on you, worshipping you, loving and serving others and enjoying and, and stewarding your world. Our Father, we are sorry for the ways that we have turned away from each of these things. Help us, we pray, to hate our sin for what we have done as humanity to your world. Help us, we pray, to trust you, recognising that our judgment is flawed. And Father, we pray as we see where we're heading towards Judgment Day, we would rejoice in the Saviour who came not to destroy us as we deserve, but to give us mercy and hope. Amen.